Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Elizabeth Dale. And Dan Del Fiorentino. And Mike Mullins. If you want to check out any of our content or any of the other interviews that aren't featured, please check out our website at www.nam.org library. Welcome back to another episode. I am one of your hosts, Elizabeth, and I'm here with my good friends. Hey, it's Dan. And Mike. We're and, happy to be here. Yeah, good. I'm glad. We are coming to you, not so live, from Carlsbad's NAM offices. Uh, and today we're going to talk about Les Paul, the man, the myth, the legend. What an incredible giant in the music products industry, in addition to being a uh, well-sought-after musician, popular guitarist, uh, inventor, record producer, all-around swell guy. Uh, we had two opportunities uh, to interview him, and so I'm so glad that we'll be playing uh, our interviews, uh, both of them, today. Yeah, and he's actually also the the namesake behind the major award at the Tech Awards uh, given each year at the NAMM Show in Anaheim. So this is an extra special edition of our podcast. Uh, we're going to uh, run the full interview and make comments throughout. Yeah, so one of the interviews, uh, the first one we're going to be listening to today was part of the oral history program, which Dan kind of spearheads there. And if you are unfamiliar, the oral history program is a collection of video and audio interviews that are listed on our website. And there's over 3,000 of them, and they're constantly growing. Um, and if you want to check out today's interview with Les Paul or any one of those other 3,000, you can find them on our website at www.nam.org. That's N-A-M-M.org. And the second clip we're going to listen to is a, a real treat because it's a radio interview. Blast from the past. But yeah, with our own dandy. How- Luckily, my voice had changed by this time, so... Yeah, you can tell a little bit of a difference, but not, <laughs> but not much. How old would, how old were you? I think I was actually twenty then, so I was old. Just a little whippersnapper. Yes, they tease so. me because my first interview was conducted when I was fourteen, and my voice was not quite the same as it is now. So <laughs> we've yet to, we've heard uh, that's very mythological stuff around here. I've yet to hear it. I don't know if you have Mike. I haven't. I've looked for it too. It's, com- <laughs> it's coming. I know it's coming. <laughs> One of the things uh, about Les Paul. Uh, and why it's so special to us here at NAM to have interviews with him is the oral history program uh, first started in the year 2000 with the idea of capturing and preserving the history of the music products industry with a real focus on those folks who don't normally get interviewed so that we can capture and preserve those stories like music retailers and music manufacturers, the folks who came up with musical instruments, engineers and designers, luthiers, and so on. And of course, the folks that sold them in the mom and pop shops and the big box stores all around the world. Well, with Les Paul, it gave us an opportunity to tie all of those elements together with a musician and allow us to sort of have a full circle experience talking with Ted McCarthy for example who helped sign Les to the Gibson Guitar Company talking with music retailers that uh, sold those instruments the Les Paul guitar and then actually now being able to talk to Mr. Paul himself so that full circle has actually uh, grown since that one first interview with Les, and we've interviewed many other musicians that are tied to the music products industry. Steve Vai comes to mind and others. And I think that's really a very exciting and important element of our collection. And I really wanna tip my hat to 
to less for that. All right, let's go back to November 13th, 2001, when Dan sat down with Les. Well, to be a music maker, what does it mean to me? It's my whole life. Uh, from the time I started out, there was no plan. There was nothing by my family. There was no, uh, no known reason that I should be uh, drawn to music or to uh, being involved in electronics. It just seemed to be that's the way it was. Uh, it, it was just no problem at all. Uh, at five, six years old, I was a uh, rotten little kid, just uh, the way I picture it. Uh, just not happy to throw the switch, but to know what's happening when you do throw a switch. And uh, so I can only compare myself to someone like my brother, and my brother would say, well, you, you're, like you're told, you throw the switch and the light goes on. I wanted to know why. And uh, of course that applied to the phonograph record. And if you people remember what a phonograph record is, uh, phonograph record, you, when mother played a record, I noticed that if you put your hand on it and slow it down, that the pitch lowered with it. And person's voice, it was normal, would go down lower and lower and slower and slower. And then mother had a player piano and I used to pump that thing for her and I noticed that no matter how slow that you played the piano or how fast you played the piano, the, the pitch didn't change. So I go to the grade school this is somewhere between kindergarten and sixth grade. Uh, I go with uh, Miss Ross, the teacher, and she doesn't know the answers to these questions exactly. So she says, well, why don't we go to the science teacher of the high school? And they ended up taking me to the library. And I was already learning analog and digital. And this was very fascinating over the period of years because at that time, I'd stared a ditch digger out of a harmonica. And uh, he just said to me, you know, it seems like you want this more than I do. <laughs> I thought he was going to hand me the sandwich, but he handed me the <laughs> he handed me his harmonica, and my mother's standing right there. She says, "No, Lester, you don't play that until we boil it." <laughs> and in boiling the harmonica, uh, I found that by doing that. Yeah, to play the blues much easier, and uh, I started playing 
uh, boiling my harmonica and playing the blues for two reasons. One is I could play, bend the note better, and the other one is that uh, I wouldn't be eating a sandwich. Uh, <laughs> the funny part about that thing is, is that I'm tempted to boil some of my guitars. <laughs> uh, but anyway, this is the beginning of uh, the music business for me, was right in my living room. Uh, and uh, my mother says, boy, too bad that you you don't know just how how good you are, what you're doing. I said, well, I don't know what I'm doing. And, and then it dawned on me that, well, if Edison can put it on a record, maybe that's what I should do. And so I proceed to make my own recording machinery so that I can record. Well, my mother at that time bought a radio. And this, of course, was another missing link in the chain to have a player piano, to have a, a Victrola, to have a telephone, to have a guitar and a harmonica, to have all these things in the living room with a radio speaker. So the telephone became my microphone, and instead of speaking into it, which I also did, I sang into it and played the harmonica. So I run the, the, the telephone into the radio, and then they could hear me louder. Everybody could hear me louder. In fact, I'm sure they're glad to this day that I left. But uh, it was the loudest thing in Waukesha. <laughs> and uh, in, in, in doing that, I said, well, I got it this far. Now I've got to get it onto that record. And so my father owned a garage. And with the help of my dad and the mechanic, Hooks, Hooks and Mechanic, I said, I need to have a turntable put the record on that's very sturdy, that's well balanced. And so old Hook said to me, well, why don't you go out in the alley and just do a hysterectomy on one of the cars in the alley? <laughs> they, they got $25 in those days to get rid of a car. So if my dad took in an old hunk of junk, what they do is they take a sledgehammer, break the head in on it, and turn it into the state and then the the cars they drag it off and and demolish it get it off the road well it was a perfect flywheel for me and my first uh, real recording machine that i'm quite proud of is uh made of dental belts and cadillac flywheels and <laughs> so that was pretty interesting it's hard to imagine being so young and essentially inventing all those things. First, kind of like what the first loudspeaker. I mean, hooking a telephone up to a radio to project his playing and his voice and everything. Yeah, just just thinking to do all of that right. is pretty incredible. 
Absolutely. And what's interesting also is the timing. Like he was saying, well, Edison could do this. Why can't I? You know, it's, it's new. It's different. You know, it, it didn't seem like it took a whole lot of extra resources. And I love that story about Hooks the mechanic. I thought that was a, a, a very insightful story that, uh, that he tells. And every once in a while, even though maybe um, some of his stories are a bit drawn out, it's really very, very insightful to me to hear what his thought process was and what the uh, materials and resources that he had available to him that he utilized to the fullest. Right. So he <clears throat> essentially to create the first uh, recording device to be able to put stuff on a record, he <laughs> chopped up a Cadillac <laughs> into pieces <laughs> and somehow Frankensteined this recording device together. That's amazing. I mean, it makes me feel like, what have I accomplished in my life? So <laughs> nothing. Right. <but laughs> I mean, it, it makes you look at everything differently. If he's looking at, you know, a car and a telephone and these, these, you know, everyday items, nobody really thinks about making a recording device or anything like that out of them. So it makes you think about other things differently for sure. So would you call him like the kind of like the the quote unquote father of those pieces? Like, does he get credit for that stuff or in the music industry or does he kind of fall by the wayside because it was really primitive in retrospect? That's a very good question. I think that because there were people like Edison and others that had laboratories and sort of official equipment that were doing the same things on a commercial scale, uh, these recording devices that he came up with in the early part of his uh, career uh, really are overlooked as far as contributions. Um, but they lead to the 8-track that we'll be talking about, the uh, multi-track recordings, uh, rather, and uh, we will be talking a little bit about that later on. And I think that those definitely are credits that he is given, um, the, the multi-track and the overdubbing and all of those processes that people really weren't doing uh, at the time that he was. But these early devices that he's talking about now and utilizing the Cadillac and the telephone, it's um, things that other people were doing in other companies, but with real equipment. And so it's telling to me that he was sort of doing this on the side. Nobody knew he was doing it. He wasn't famous for doing it. He was just a kid. And yet it leads to a plethora of innovations and developments. How'd you like the way I worked in the word plethora? I was waiting for goodies to come in. Personally. That will come in later. I know. That's my goal. My goal is to make sure goodies get said at least I, once. I think we just need a new word for each episode of the podcast. <laughs> word of the day. Yeah. That's not a bad idea. Should it be <laughs> goodies or plethora for this one? <laughs> I vote plethora. What's our next segment of Let's Paul? <laughs> Up until that time, I had the normal diseases and the normal little setbacks that you have, uh, which also kind of comes into my life uh, and, and I thought about this many, many, many times and that is that I don't know, I had the mumps or I had something and I'm uh, laying there in, uh, in the living room and there's a tra train track across the street and the interesting thing about it was uh, fact that that train would be switching cars and 
slowing to a stop and chugging away to get started. And there were some very interesting things that, uh, that happened that while I was lying there, uh, not feeling well, I observed that when the train began to move and chug, it created a frequency that rattled the bay window where I was lying and uh, looking out of. And when it reached a certain frequency, the train moved the window until it shook. So I'm going right back to my teacher again and asking my teacher why. But it was terribly interesting that I should notice this phenomena that was taking place between that train across the street and my bay window and why the two of them seemed to lock up to each other just at a certain time, a certain frequency, and something that related to the pitch. And when I heard that pitch, and when I, I says, uh-oh, that window's gonna start to do that thing. Well, I told my brother, my brother says, my, he's nuttier than ever, you know. So my brother thought I was the village idiot for sure in that time with the switches, with the telephones, with everything I was doing. And even if I was sick laying there in bed, I was analyzing something. Which brings up a, a little tangent that uh, might interest you. And uh, it's, sort of, it's sort of a thread that goes through my, my entire life. I'm 86 years old, and, and these 86 years, all is not just where you walk on the stage and kill them, or you go make a recording and it's a hit. Uh, it takes a lot of hard work. A lot of perseverance, and you've got to have the determination to to want to do these things. And some of these things are seem almost beyond our reach. Uh, and somehow, you have to be able to say, "I know I can do it." And yet, when you Set your goal, you don't want to set it too high because of a, an example would be is that when I was a kid, I rigged up a, I had a dachshund dog, a little, a little dog called him Buster, and I hooked him up to a box, I put some wheels on it, and I got a long fish pole and I hung a wiener on the end of the fish pole. Uh, so when I wanted to go somewhere, I got in my, li my, my limo, and uh, I just reeled out uh, that dog for my dog. <laughs> and so that little hot dog that hung out on that wiener, that hung out on the end of my fish pole, my dog had chased the hell out of that thing, and I had dog power. And I was on my way. Was it enough to actually carry you? It was enough to carry me. And, <laughs> and 
my mother just thought that was the greatest thing, and she would just laugh and laugh and laugh because of, of the creativity that I had of <laughs> getting around town with my, my little red wagon. So now the reason, reason for the story about this little dog is that uh, it's great to have the fish pole and have the wiener hanging on the end of this thing and creating such a wonderful uh, way of travel and how interesting it was that it worked. As long as you rewarded the dog and he didn't chase this thing and give up because he never can, he'll just say, finally, there's no use chasing that thing because I can't, I never, I've never, I never get it. So once in a while, I would see that he was rewarded uh, for this wonderful feat we had going. Well, I think that applies to us and uh, from being a kid, a curious kid to learn these things and everything, I would set goals. I would say, well, I know someday that I too will be on the radio or I too will be on the stage or I too will be able to play with Coleman Hawkins or uh, Louis Armstrong or one of those people. Uh, and lo and behold, I did. I ended up playing not only with them, uh, but playing with, with others besides him, uh, higher, uh, more, more of the wishes that uh, come along with uh, when you win one, there's another one next to you, and uh, you go higher and higher and higher. And of course, uh, uh, there's nothing that you get without paying for it also. And so uh, with, with all the good fortune you have, you have some misfortunes. And I had a terrific accident in 1948. And it was right at the time that I had created the multiple track recording. And uh, I was very excited about this whole concept of taking one voice and making it into a glee club and one guitar and putting it into an orchestra. And uh, to do all these things, uh, uh, which no one else has done to invent echo, delay, phasing, uh, a bass guitar, an electric guitar. Uh, all these things that came about <clears throat> came to a standstill in 1948 when I tipped a car over in Oklahoma. And uh, I'm lying in the hospital and I don't know how long it's going to take to get well but it ended up taking two years. And two years in the hospital, everybody or many of my friends, uh, 
people that uh, would advise me or talk to me, oh, you're going to be okay, this, that. Well, you may never be able to play again because I will never have the use of this arm. Uh, there were so many uh, negative things. So when I was lying there in the hospital, what I thought of is what a wonderful, great thing this is that I have uh, this time to slow down, to stop, actually stop, and think about all the things that I've done, all the things that I'm hoping to do, all the things I haven't done, and where I would like to go. I can reload my gun, go in and hold up another bank. But uh, how was I going to do this? Well, I read. So I read a lot of books in psychiatry with Young, Adler, Freud. Uh, read a lot of books on electronics. Studied uh, while the other person in the bed, I guess he was just over there groaning and complaining about not getting well. I said, uh, this has got a good side to it, too. Uh, no, I wasn't strange. I don't think I was strange. My brother would have said he's nutty or never, but uh, uh, what, what I thought, as long as I'm hung up with this thing, what I will do is I will write. I'll write songs, and so write music. And so all the things that I wouldn't have done had I not been stopped, not dead, but stopped in my tracks, I wouldn't have done them if it hadn't been for the automobile accident. And so in that year and a half, I conceived all kinds of things. I, I solved so many of my problems that I, I, I had, but I didn't know what to do about them because I was too busy moving. I was too busy with the wiener and the fish pole and the dog, and I'm. Uh, <laughs> by the way, that whole limo went to hell one day when, uh, when my uh, my dog saw a cat. <laughs> cat went up the tree, and so did my limo. <laughs> and I, I brought the thing home. <laughs> I brought the thing home with the wheels and the dog. <laughs> <laughs> the fishbowl. <laughs> Mother says, what happened? I well, <laughs> hadn't counted on it. Uh, so things don't go always the way you think they're going to go. <laughs> Back to the story. Uh, yeah, we had a, a couple of years to think things over and rearrange. And I had to go back and learn to play all over again. Les Paul was 33 when that car accident happened. And uh, I, I tried to do some research in preparation for this recording to kind of get a little bit more knowledgeable about it because uh, as we're going to hear later when we go back to Les, it was devastating um, and it really altered the course of his life. And so I thought it would be interesting for our listeners to kind of get the nitty gritty and a little bit more details. But there's surprisingly, there's very little information out there. Um, about the accident and what I could find doesn't necessarily 
come from reliable resources not saying that that's it's not true information it's just you can't verify it and I would hate to go out there and talk about things that maybe aren't true because this guy on this music forum posted it and everything like that but uh I did find one article that gives a little bit of detail that talks about the accident happened on Route 66 near Davenport, Oklahoma in 1948, which would make, as we said earlier, which would make less uh, approximately 33. And um, he was transported to the Oklahoma City's Wesley Hospital, where he says he was in recovery for about two years. Um, This article says it was almost a year or so, but I would tend to err on his story not so much right this one um and one of the things in this article that i found interesting is that at first uh doctors had told Lus that he would probably have to have his one of his arms amputated oh uh, wow initially which is crazy i mean think about if he was down an arm i don't think that he would have let that stop him in some aspects but it would have been hard to do a lot of what he did (laughs) yeah for sure drastically more different (laughs) uh products would have come out from him i think one of the stories that circulated for a long time was that one of the doctors knew Les was a guitar player and did extra measures than maybe he would have normally have done to uh, to keep Les's arm. I yeah. don't know if that's true or not, but uh, that was certainly one of the rumors. Right. He brings that up in our next clip as well, that uh, doctor, when they were talking about uh, treatment courses, the doctor said, well, he plays guitar, you know. in in their little meetings and that prevented them from doing the amputation. But one thing is very clear, and he pointed that out earlier, and I think it's uh, worth repeating, this was really a very important sort of critical time in his life. It gave him a chance to, and I love the way he said it, stop. He just stopped. And he, of course, had to relearn things, but he also just stopped. And he reevaluated what was important to him, what were some of the goals that he had, what were some of the mysteries that he still wanted to solve, uh, especially those regarding recording and sound. And who knows what would have happened if his playing career just continued without that opportunity to stop. Yeah, it definitely sounds like he got very introspective, you know, kind of a when you have that brush with death. You know, they talk about a lot of people say that when that happens, you kind of get your life in perspective. And as you mentioned, reevaluate your your dreams and your desires and your needs. And it sounds like he definitely did that, the epitome of that thought process. So let's hear more from Les. And uh, we're going to hear about his the aftermath of the, the car accident and his injuries and the extent and everything like that. Tell us a little bit about exactly what happened. Um, your arm was severely injured. Is that correct? Yeah. And they actually had to put some pins? Yeah. Tell us about that. Well, uh, the arm, the work, everything was coming along pretty good. They were going <clears> to <throat> put me back to normal, except this right arm was uh, so badly injured that they were going to amputate the arm. And so the two doctors were fighting in the hallway, and I could I could hear him arguing. One says it comes off, the other one says no, he's not, he's not driving a hay rack. This guy is a guitarist, and and uh, it's important to save whatever we can. And uh, with all this arguing going on and everything, it got to a point where 
the two doctors came to me and says, well, what are, what are we going to do? You have to make a decision. I said, I made a decision long before <laughs> you guys got into an argument. I'm going to keep my arm and I want to go back and play somehow. And so in the case of my arm, uh, they saved the arm with no movement. They put seven pins in their screws. And the doctor did it. I'll never forget the second operation when they, when they opened this arm up and looked at it. They said, you wouldn't believe, you know, the doc's at the end of the bed. And he says to me, Les, you wouldn't believe what would happen. He says, we get you all opened up and everything, and we look in there, and you got seven screws that we have to replace. But he says there were a Phillips head, so we had to send a kid out to the hardware store and get a Phillips head screwdriver. <laughs> and he says, so you had a rest period there. <laughs> uh, uh, that was just one of the many, one of the many. I, I've had more setbacks uh, probably than, than most people and still be around to talk about them. It just seems like I've been plagued with one thing after the other. Fella come up to say hi to me and he cuffs this ear, he knocks out that eardrum. Four years later, a guy comes up behind me and he says, hi Les, and he happens to cuff the ear the wrong way, and blows this eardrum out. And there's a total of four operations on my ears, so I haven't been able to hear anything. Of course, sometimes it comes in handy if you're with your with your girlfriend or something, and you just don't want to hear the chatter that's going on. At least I can turn it off. <laughs> or you're playing with a bad musician, right? Bad musicians, yeah. <laughs> well, then I turn it off when I play. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, and yet you keep going. I think that the most encouraging thing about these stories is that Les Paul picks himself up and just keeps going. I mean, this optimism that you are uh, modest about and sitting in this hospital room for a very long period of time, most people, I think, would start defeating themselves with their own uh, thoughts. And, yeah. and you really picked your chin up quite high and started a whole new list of goals and objectives that you wanted to obtain. What, how do you explain that? I mean, does that come from your parents? Where, where did that optimism come from? I don't know where this uh, drive, this uh, perseverance comes from, this determination uh, that you're not going to give up. Uh, I guess all of us, none of us, uh, no matter how much we believe, are in a hurry to leave. And so we fight on. And uh, in, in many of my cases where it looked uh, pretty drear, uh, what I found is that when you hit these lows and things aren't going so good, uh, you're just that much more determined to do it. Now, why? Well, one, I found out with my heart surgery that when I went in and had this 
uh, heart surgery done, I happened to be one of the very fortunate uh, persons that with this bypass surgery that it couldn't be done. And so by going to the Mayo Clinic, by going to the, the New York Columbia Presbyterian St. Luke's Hospital, uh, three or four of the very large hospitals and talking with their uh, fine surgeons and, and uh, doctors, they voted not that it was too risky uh, an operation to do on me. This was in 1980. And uh, so I had a friend of mine and I'd heard of a doctor in Cleveland, Ohio. And we hunted this doctor, my friend did, hunted this doctor up, and he also turned me down. And I said, did you tell him that I, who I was or anything? He said, no, I used your right name, Lester Puffles. And uh, showed him the angiogram. And I said, well, why don't we do what we always do? We usually uh, said, well, I'm Les Paul. And the guy said, the Les Paul? And it works wonders. <laughs> and, and someone out there seems to somehow either cash my check or uh, get me out of a ticket for double parking or something. And so what happened in this case is that uh, my friend Ralph took uh, my angiogram to the Cleveland Clinic, and uh, and it happened. The doctor says, the guitar player, the Les Paul, the guitar player, he says, well, have him come in. So the doctor called me and says, well, how soon can you get here? This is on a Wednesday. I said, I'll be there Thursday. And Thursday, I was at the Cleveland Clinic. And for 10 days, I waited. And he called me in the room and he said, Les, and I had maybe five, six of my friends with me there. And we listened to an interesting proposal. He says, I want to try something new. I want to bring the mammary artery down and I want to give you instant blood. And he's saying that this he doesn't know why no, no one else thought of this thing, but would I be willing to do it? And I said, well, what are the chances? And I thought they were going to say they were, they were worse. He said, no, they're the same. And I said, well, why don't we go do it? He says, great. And we did the operation. When the doctor finished the operation, he says, well, it turned out okay, and I'm going on a good drunk. <laughs> so the doc, uh, 14 days later, he's going to say goodbye. The operation was a success. And of course, today, nobody has this operation. Almost everybody has the operation, has what I have. And I'm very proud to say that I had something to do with that. And all I had to do is say yes, and uh, lucky to have a, a, a great
great creative doctor to be able to do what he did. And uh, that's 23 years ago. And he called me in his office 14 days when I'm to leave. And he says, Les, I want to ask you two questions. I'm going to ask two favors from you. One, that you'll be my friend, and the other one, that you'll work hard. Gee, I says, Doc, I thought that's what got me in here. No, no, no. He says, hard work never, never hurt anybody. He says, in fact, it'll probably do, do more to keep you going. And I think so many times of how, how right he was. And that is, if, well, first of all, I think of the other guys that were in the room with me. They're all gone. And I'm still gone. But the thing that interests me most is the fact that I have a reason to get up in the morning, to get up and go to work. I've got something to do. Again, I'm with that dog with a wiener. I have something to go for. And I just keep that wiener just out of reach far enough so that I almost can get it. And every once in a while, I'll, I'll hit, a, hit a winner. Now, I come uh, plagued with arthritis in 1961. And these hands, I have no movement in these hands at all. So I have to play the guitar with no fingers. See, so I can, I can bend them from, the, from here where they join the hands, but no movement in the fingers. See, they're just they're solid. So I had to learn to play the guitar all over again and say, now how am I going to play the guitar with no moving fingers? So that, that last part where Les is talking about when his arthritis has set in and he has to kind of relearn to play the guitar, um, since we don't have the visual, uh, what he's talking about is the joints, uh, the knuckle joints that are closest to your palm, essentially, those are still fully functional, but the middle knuckle, uh, the smaller one halfway down the finger, he cannot move that joint at all, and so he has no dexterity in each of his fingers, which makes it very difficult to play an instrument, and especially the guitar, and he has to relearn the entire process, which I think is amazing, because he probably had to relearn it after the car accident too with all the pins in his in his arm uh had to kind of start from scratch there and then he has his heart surgery and there's a chance that he might not get to play after that and he overcomes all these medical obstacles throughout his life i remember reading an article um interview with less in guitar world magazine in the 70s in which the uh, the uh, author compared Les's accident and his ability to relearn the guitar to that of Django Reinhardt, who um, whose fingers were um, badly burned, and he played 
with only uh, a couple of fingers on one hand and became, of course, a jazz guitar legend. And Les's response to that was complete embarrassment that uh, he would be compared to the great Django Reinhardt. Um, and I think that's very funny because he showed the exact ability to um, to reinvent himself and to still play uh, even with this limitation. And, uh, of course, many people have... Um, try to emulate both those gentlemen uh, with fully functioning hands and having a difficult time doing so. Yeah, I mean, I think relearning anything is pretty difficult, um, but having to relearn how to play twice, probably because of both incidents, it's just... You really talk about mental fortitude. I yeah. mean, it's not just the physical aspect of relearning how to use your hands or your arm in a different way because your function isn't restored to where it used to be, but getting over that mental block of having to do it all. I mean, I don't right. think many people are as tough mentally to do it once, let alone twice. Yeah, and it just kind of it shows you that he 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 was so driven that he he did that, you know? He he really got up the the strength to relearn all of that stuff, and it, it it it's funny because you know obviously the accidents were horrible things that we wish didn't happen, but because of them, it kind of pushed him in this direction to be more focused. And you wonder what would happen if he if he wasn't in those accidents, would he still be driven to do all this and and go farther, or would he have not have accomplished as much because he wasn't pushed from the accidents. Yeah, and Les definitely seems like a guy who thrives on challenge. Yeah, you know, for sure. he's he's got an engineer's brain in my perspective and he sees a problem in front of him and he wants to find a solution. So I don't think giving up, whether it's giving up relearning to play or giving up inventing uh, a new gizmo or gadget, I don't think he'd do it. I think he just sees it as a, another obstacle to overcome. So Well, he was certainly driven to prove to himself that he could be a guitar player again. And I think in doing so, he became a better guitar player. And, you know, a lot of times because of those multi-track recordings, uh, let's say Lover or Brazil or some of those big hits that he played really, really fast, a lot of us want to say, well, it's the electronic sleight of hand that made it faster. And, of course, we know he split it up and so on and so forth. Um, but even if you slow it down, he didn't make any mistakes. And having a limitation... Uh, of uh, of his hand is quite remarkable no matter how, what the speed was. But in later years, of course, he was asked to do those same recordings live and he was able to do it very, very fast. So I, I believe that he was um, committed to himself to be even better than he was before. And I think he proved that he could be. All right, so let's hear the last bit of the conclusion of our oral history from 2001 with Les Paul. So I says, well, one thing, I'm going to have to get become accustomed to one note instead of ten. Because where I could play ten notes, now I can only play one note. But uh, if you're going to play dum-dum or dum-dum, dum-dum, you can play it many different ways. Just, just a, an order or two. So with that thought in mind, I said, well, I'm going to learn to play the guitar all over again with this, with this, it's 
This is a, 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 a real tough disease to have uh, arthritis. The point that was good about the arthritis is that, believe it or not, the arthritis gives up. And when it can't do any more damage, it stops. And when I figured out that if I can let this thing go until it can't go any farther, okay, so I kept working with medications and with exercises and everything to try not to heal the finger, but get the finger so that it would be so crippled that it wouldn't move at all. If it didn't move at all and it didn't hurt, I could go back and play. And now what are you going to do? Excuse me, and play with him with a couple of uh, uh, movements of your hand and what can you do with it. And that's the challenge. And I've had more fun with the, with the problems that I've had with this uh, arthritis over anything I've had. And you say, well, why? Why are you doing it? And I says, well, I asked my friend what he's going to do, and he says, I don't know, I'm going to get up and I guess work around the house and do something. He has really no goal. And I have a goal, and that goal is, is that I'm going to end up and I want to play as good as I played before, only with no hands. Hmm. And it's a kind of an interesting uh, uh, way of uh, tricking your head into uh, uh, carrying on. Then you do the same thing in writing articles or doing just what I'm doing now, and that is to help somebody for many reasons. It may not be because he's not feeling well. It may be that he's just been floating around and hasn't made a decision on where he would, what he'd like to do uh, so many people, it, 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 it's absolutely astonishing to, to, to me to see so many people at 30 years old. Uh, and I said, well, what are you going to be when you grow up? Well, I haven't decided. And I, I, could, I could never understand that because I knew where I was going to go or what I was going to do from the beginning of life on. And there's a lot of detours. And when a detour comes along, oh boy, do I get them. I get them bridge washed out, <laughs> no left turn, one way only. <laughs> uh, I, a lot of detours. And, and when they come about, well, then you dance around them. You just go around the detour and you go right back. Like getting a map out and say, well, I'm going to leave New York and I'm going to go to California. And you say, well, okay, I'll go to San Diego. If you want to get to San Diego, uh, you'll, you'll get somewhere in Indiana and you'll find out that the bridge is washed out and it'll say detour and you go, now you can either go make a new road or you can go on the detour and continue right on to San Diego. And that's what I do. I just say there's going to be a lot of detours, a lot of obstacles, and, and then you, when, when, when it happens, why well, you approach it, you work around it, and then you go right back to doing it. 
And so this is what I do. I just love to uh, prepare to 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 do the things that I've been wanting. I'm, I'm working on a couple of inventions, inventions of mine I've been working on for at least 60 years. And there's two or three things missing that I haven't figured out yet. And so I'll go to the library. They'll say, well, there he goes. And I'll go to the I'll go to the library and I'm reading, I'm studying, I'm asking questions. I got friends of mine helping me and constantly uh, trying to solve some of the problems. And sooner or later, you, you will find them. Les, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the log. <coughs> well, <coughs> when I was a Kids starting out way back at the beginning. Uh, I got my harmonica and guitar, and I was uh, ready to head for the big time. And I got a job on Saturday night playing at a barbecue stand, halfway between Waukesha and Milwaukee. And uh, I uh, rigged up the telephone. Uh, on the end of a broom, broomstick, chuck the broomstick, the, the broom bristle part down into a cinder block. That was my mic stand and my mic. And I had the battery chargers on it and uh, I'm singing through my mother's radio. And uh, people would drive up in their cars and uh, get a hamburger and a root beer or whatever. And this one fellow was in the rumble seat of the car. And I wished I had his note, and I wished I knew who he was. And this way back in the 20s, and he says, Red, he wrote a note to the car hop, and she handed it to me. And he says, Red, he says, I can hear you loud and clear. Your harmonica is fine. Your voice is fine. But he says, the guitar is not loud enough. And I thought, well, now, by George, what am I going to do about that? So I thought about getting another telephone and another radio and doing all of that. But I says, first thing I got to do is amplify the guitar. So I'm going to plug the guitar in the wall. <laughs> now, if you don't think I was a strange one in Waukesha, <laughs> yeah, I had less friends and less friends. And uh, what happened is that finally I said to, to begin with, I got the guitar where I jabbed the phonograph pickup into the top of the guitar and they could hear it. But it fed back. I'd turn it up at the bottom, it would feed back and howl. So I chucked into the hole of the guitar some tablecloths, some napkins, socks, uh, shirts, shorts, whatever. That didn't work. Then I filled it with plaster Paris. Funny, I Toss the guitar out completely as a bad idea. 
Finally, I made a decision to make two guitars. Well, I'm going to make two. One's going to be a piece of steel railroad track, and one of them's going to be a balsa wood. I'm going to make one with the softest material that will hold the string. And I'm going to make one with the most rigid mass dense material that I could find, and that's a piece of railroad track. String a string on each one of them, and then take the other part of the telephone that you listen to on there is a magnet and a coil in there, and I'd hook that up to the radio, and lo and behold, it worked. And hands down, the railroad track was the finest sounding string on a guitar, the, the, to simulate a guitar that I had ever heard. And when I went running to my mother and I told her I found it, it's a piece of railroad track. Mother says, the day you see Gene Autry on a horse with a piece of railroad track. <laughs> and I was, I was blown out of the water with that one. <laughs> And so, well, it isn't going to be the balsa wood because no, 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 it has to have some weight to it. It's got to, it's got to sustain the sound. And so I proceeded and proceeded to make guitar after guitar after guitar. And one day, in 1941, I decided that I would go to the Epiphone factory. I was here in New York. I'd flipped a coin, left Chicago, came to New York to go to the big time. Mm. And when we got to New York, this is when I went down to the Epiphone factory and said, I would like to use your facilities on Sundays to make an experimental guitar. And they said, if we can watch or see what you're doing, we'd love to have you do it. And so the night watchman, he helped me turn on the switches and uh, told me where all the stuff was. And I built my guitar, which I called a log. It was a four by four. And with this log, I could string up my strings and I could go out and prove for once and for all that it's not a railroad track, but it's a piece of wood. And with this piece of wood, that's all you needed was two pickups in it and one pickup at that time. And uh, plug it into the wall, and you got yourself an electric guitar, and the rest would be history. Mm -hmm. Well, there's one, one fault about that thing. I took this log, this 4 by 4 and I went to a little tavern in Queens. And when I played the guitar that night, there was hardly no reaction. And so I thought, well, I guess I, I was wrong. And I got thinking about it, and I said, well, you know, a four by four don't really look like a guitar. So I go back to the factory and I made two sides and put them on so that when you clamp the sides on, you now have a guitar. It looks like a guitar. I went back to the same club couple of Saturdays later, and I played for them, and to my amazement, they went crazy over that guitar. 
And the reason being that many people see with their eyes, they hear with their eyes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how that uh, the log came about. And of course, from that time on, it's been very good to me. Uh, the Les Paul guitar. Yeah, it's uh, something I never dreamt of. But I guess it was one of the things with the wiener and the dog. It was one of those things. Sometimes I'm someday I'll make a guitar that's right. <laughs> I don't know if that'll ever happen, but I keep trying. All right, so let's talk about the log. What do we know? Wow. What do we want to know? That log, um, just about a month after this interview was conducted in his New Jersey home, was sent to the Country Music Hall of Fame in Nashville, Tennessee. So I like to think I was one of the last people to hold it and touch it before it went into their archives. And I have to say, um, I was sort of awestruck. First of all, when we when I set up the camera f for the interview, um, his son Russ was there and showed me into the um, studio where Les's huge collection of amplifiers and microphones. The first microphone he built, uh, the first ones that he used in his radio days. He had a huge collection of items, and they were all there. And uh, so I was left alone. Um, he went up to get his dad, and I set up the lights. And um, I just sort of looked around after everything was set up. I made sure I had my hands behind my back so in case they came down, they didn't think I was actually going to touch anything. But boy, was I enamored with being there and seeing all this great gear. But I had no idea what was in this one particular case. It was an odd-shaped case uh, until the interview. And he said, well, do you want to see the log? And I said, um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he picked it up and he handed it to me. So I got to hold the log and, and look at it. And, of course, it has the, uh, the spoon from his mother's kitchen um, and you know that, that big piece of railroad tie that he doesn't like to call a railroad tie but everybody refers to it that way and it's a piece of history without question and that inspiration of course of building his own guitar led to the series of Les Paul guitars made by the Gibson company um, that don't exactly look like the log but are based on the concept of this big piece of wood as opposed to the uh, hollow acoustic guitar resonating the electric pulses and of course the pickup and so on and um, so that was a really interesting opportunity that I won't soon forget and this might be a good opportunity just to um, say that this interview and uh, the previous one um, that I conducted with Les had a lot to do with his son Russ who was also his manager he was a guy always at every gig that Les did he was the sound guy he recorded all the performances and made copies for people uh, as you probably well know when Les performed every uh, Tuesday night in New York City for many 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 years um, other artists were invited to go up on stage so that they can have the 
almighty claim of playing with Les Paul. Um, Rick Nielsen from Cheap Trick, who Elizabeth and I recently uh, interviewed, was among the many musicians that have photographs taken of those performances, and those photographs often were taken by Les's son, Russ, who became very uh, instrumental in the collaboration of the Les Paul Award and the tech um, organization that, of course, is now at the NAM show. And I remember the first time that uh, the Les Paul Award was um, given out during a NAM show. Uh, Russ was on hand, and it was a really special moment because I know that Russ cared very much about his father's legacy and was very proud of the fact that it continued. Of course, Lester was around for the uh, first many ceremonies of the Tech Award and handed out the Les Paul Award personally to many people. But after his passing, uh, his son took over until his passing. And I like to think that uh, the folks here at NAM continue with that tradition very proudly. What I heard from all of that, Mike, is that uh, Dan's got to take us on a field trip to see it. Because he's, uh, he's got some sort of connection he's got to work, right? That's what I heard. So come July when we're out in Nashville for the Summer NAM show, I expect a field trip, lunch included, I hope. Always as, lunch included. <laughs> as long as you'll allow me to give you a tour of that museum. That place is awesome. I don't think uh, I can be gone from home for six to seven years. So, uh, <laughs> no, that would be my possible. Graceland tour. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Insightful, but uh, lengthy, I think is how they describe it on the banner. Um, <laughs> so the other part that I wanted to touch on from that last segment with Les was, uh, he kind of says it at the end, the, the concept of hearing with your eyes. And I loved I loved that line. Um, and the reference is that when he takes out the first log and plays it for uh, an audience, they don't respond very well. And then uh, he gets told, you know, that it needs to look like a guitar essentially and not as it does. And so he goes home and kind of redesigns it and realizes that uh, people do, there is a visual component to music and to hearing. And I find that absolutely fascinating because I don't think that's something that many people key in on very frequently, but it's true. Yeah, well, I think the design that goes into instruments um, is definitely a a big factor as to why they're successful. because you definitely want to be playing something that sounds amazing and that has um, great tonal qualities, but at the same time, you want it to look good on stage if that's what you're going to be doing with it. If it's just for studio work, it's it's a whole other thing. But for performance, I, I, I think um, the the looks of the instruments definitely play a, a big role. And, and the same thing goes for... Um, uh, performing in general mm-hmm. um stage presence that's mm-hmm. that's a huge um, costume design whatever exactly, else you want yeah. to put into it yeah. yeah that's a huge part of of performing well i think especially nowadays i mean who doesn't go to a, con- a major concert now and expect a show i mean you know it's not you don't just sit there and close your eyes and listen to the music like you expect it's it's theatrical to a lot a large degree so I also have a favorite line um, that Les Paul, <laughs> to segue back to that, um, Les called me here at the NAM offices after this interview was done uh, several years as I was looking for another engineer, and he helped me find him. And um, we were just chatting on the phone, and he says, you know, the older I get, the fewer notes I play. 
And I thought that was a fantastic line. And uh, that's one that will always stay with me. So now it's Michael's turn to come up with his favorite line from Les Paul. <laughs> so you... <laughs> I, I personally like the part about the dog and the fishing rod. <laughs> I mean, it's a good life lesson though, right? I mean, he circles back around on it constantly about... So it's, I mean, really setting a goal for yourself and then, oh, but setting realistic goals. I mean, that's really the moral of that, right? Right, yeah. You got to be able to get that hot dog. Yeah, just the fact that he actually did that is... <laughs> <laughs> Comical, yes. at, to say the least. So <laughs> fly on the wall for that. Um, so we have more from to wrap up the oral history interview, right? With Les Paul, just a small segment? Yes, we do. So let's go back to that. The Gibson people came to me and said, Les, we want you to design the guitar that you would like to, that you, you can dream as to being the great, the great guitar of the future. You go ahead and, and I've been thinking about and thinking about, so, oh my goodness, the things that I have in my mind for the guitar tomorrow. And some of them are pretty scary. Uh, in fact, everything is kind of scary today because of what's going on. Everything is moving so fast. And uh, uh, it just doesn't, it, it, it scares you even to go down and buy something because the very camera I'm talking into now is out of date, the date they thought about it. <laughs> That's only a year ago. <laughs> very good point. <laughs> I'm but, curious when you when you started that design that Gibson challenged you to create. What were some of the things that you visioned for that guitar of the future? Okay, <clears throat> when I finished building that guitar, the Epiphone people didn't think very much of it, and so I decided I would take it to. The, the place that it should be anyway with Gibson. That's the largest manufacturer, the most famous of all guitars in the world was the Gibson guitar. That's the absolute ultimate. I took it to Gibson and they laughed at me. And then many years later, uh, the chairman of the board said to me, he says, Les, I've got to tell you something. He says, uh, he could tell me this now because we're very successful with the guitars and they're, they're selling like mad. And he says, you know, when you came to us 15 years ago with that idea, with that guitar, he says, uh, we called you the character with the broomstick with the pickups on it. And he says, we did, we, we kind of looked down upon your whole concept. And they were wrong, and uh, I was right. But uh, you never know. Uh, I, I I sure got enough uh, things around here that don't work. <laughs> and and I, 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 it was last night, I think, I said, you know, that's one of the most stupid things I ever did. And that's only two days ago. So I'm constantly doing things, learning, and I don't know, uh, there's always a surprise around the corner. And I, I guess those are all interesting uh, that we, we have those. 
I guess if a person never got sick, it would be terrible. You could only get sick once, he'd die. I think you have to get sick every once in a while, and I think that you have to. <laughs> Everything goes right, doesn't they? they no, no. It's kind of, it kind of balances out. You have a good day and a bad day. If it's if sun shines every day, that's not right either. <laughs> it's not going to make any difference. It's going to snow here pretty soon. <laughs> Les, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit. Uh, in our museum, we have a video clip from the Colgate Comedy Hour starring Abbott and Costello with you and your lovely wife at the time, Mary Ford. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about uh, Mary Ford for a guy who never was lucky enough to meet her and also what that era in your life means to you now. Well, there was many very interesting highlights uh, in my career. And I, the, the biggest one by far was the one where uh, I came out of NBC in Hollywood uh, with a chore. Uh, the program director says, you got nine shows you can do anything with, nine 15-minute shows. I already had nine uh, playing jazz, and they wanted me to do nine shows of something different. And so I got out on the street at NBC, Sunset and Vine, and in about two seconds I see Gene Autry going by, so I holler, hey, hey, Gene. And he says, hey, Rhubarb, how you doing? I was called Rhubarb Red many years prior to that. And so Gene Autry says, what's happening? I says, well, I was just thinking, I'm looking for a girl singer. And I said, a country, country singer. And he says, well, the only one I know of is one that sings on my show, and she's with a trio. And he says, she's good, she's good. So I went over and I, I let, went with Gene, went over to CBS and I listened at the rehearsal. And Gene gave me her phone number and I called her. Her name was Colleen Summers. And I said, Colleen, I'm looking for a girl singer. My name is Les Paul. She says, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she didn't believe it was, that it was Les Paul. And Les Paul happened to be her favorite guitar player. And so she was sure this was a hoax. And it wasn't me. So finally I convinced her to come over to my home. And I forgot all about it. And so that Thursday or something, uh, at seven o'clock at night, she used to come over and, and record at my studios, and I was just building a studio. And that Thursday night, this gal comes over in the car, and I knew what she looked like because I'd seen her rehearsing with Jane Audrey. She had never seen me. And so I was on the front lawn. It was dark. And I was picking up some beer cans and some old newspapers and mowing the lawn, which I do every year. Uh, <laughs> and Mary thought I was the gardener. Any guy with a flashlight uh, taped onto a, a lawnmower, not exactly what you'd call a kosher cat, so 
she she just she just said, uh, Mister, can you tell me where Les Paul's studios are? And I said, Lady, you just go right down that driveway. And she went down that driveway, and there are the garages. But what we had done is built the studio, and hadn't put a door in it yet. So they had to lift her through the window. And so finally, uh, she's there and she says, well, where's Les Paul? And I says, oh, he'll be here in a minute. And finally, finally, I walk in. And I could hear her. I was in the control room. And, and she said, don't tell me that's Les Paul. That's Les Paul. She says, that's the gardener. No, no, that's Les Paul. So I heard the conversation. So I stepped through the window and picked up a guitar and I played a run for her. And she said, well, here you are, Les Paul. Well, I know she was very disappointed. And that night we went over and had some pizza in a nearby spot there. And we talked about what we we're going to do on our radio show. We did this radio show, nine of them, uh, a week. And uh, her, I called her Mary Lou on the show. And we got along great right from the first second we met. Uh, she loved my sense of humor. And uh, I, I hope my guitar playing. And I realized that, uh, that that Mary was a, a very special person, that she was a very talented person. And she, of all people, didn't realize how talented she was. She had no idea of her talent and was frightened to death of, of stage, of... Uh, being in the limelight to be uh, where, anywhere there's pressure. And she was just brought up in a family where she was anything but uh, to be in show business. And here was this great, great, great talent. And it's a long story, but eventually I was talking about that last night, too. Uh, someone asked me on the show uh, how, I, how I found Mary to sing with me, and, and it was strictly by, by accident. Uh, I had Mary and I were in New York. I was playing the Paramount with the Andrew sisters. And I said, you know what? I said, Rosemary Clooney, that's going to be my gal. I said, she can sing with my trio, and it would be great. And Rosie was, boy, she was a gung-ho to go do it with us. But there was a problem. I didn't know what to do with Rosie when she wasn't singing. And I may talk for hours and play for hours, and here's this gal sitting there in a chair with a tambourine <laughs> waiting to to sing, of course, because if the singer has nothing to do, they'll just sit there with their hands, usually you hand them a tambourine. So we didn't know what, what to do. And I finally says, now, nah, Mary, I said, I'm not going to get Rosie. I'm not going to go that way. 
And she says, what about Doris Day? Oh, I says, Doris Day. So I made a deal with Doris Day. And Doris Day was going to leave uh, the orchestra and, and, and go with me, with my group. I says, Barry, I says, I, I don't think that's going to work. I says, yeah. I could see her with her damn laundry hanging out of my, my station wagon. I'm flying down the road going to play Milwaukee or something. I says, here she is with that tambourine sitting in that chair. <laughs> and every singer I, I could think of would have a tambourine sitting in a chair. And, uh, and just for spite, I probably wouldn't have them sing all night. Uh, so <laughs> it just wasn't a good idea to have a person that couldn't play. And finally, one night, I find that Mary does play the guitar. And uh, I taught her to play. And in no time at all, she learned what had to be done. And Mary and I hit it off uh, real great. And it, of course, the rest was history. And. Uh, there was that one particular show that I've asked to talk about here, and that is the Colgate Comedy Hour. And it was uh, Mary and I, <clears throat> and we were playing in Las Vegas, and we had to go down to, to LA and uh, do a TV show. And in doing the TV show, there's a part in the show where I play, a, it's a comedy bit, I do a fast run, and then Mary copies me and makes me look bad. And so I go around, Ma, and I throw my arm out like this, well, I happen to break this finger on the show. And uh, so I said, oh, man, I said, I said to Mary, I whispered it to her, I, she says, what happened? I said, I broke my finger. And uh, what happened is that when I got back to Las Vegas, after the show, I had to play that and Tiger Rider, if you can believe that, with one finger broken. <laughs> it just shows you what it can happen if you got a lot of people applauding and what you can do if you have to do it, right? <laughs> you go out there, oh boy, <laughs> I am you must be. And uh, we finished the show and everything. I went to the doctor in Las Vegas and he says, not only did you break your finger, but you have arthritis. This was 1961, and that was the first time that I ever knew about arthritis or anything, but that was the beginning of it. But that was our little show with Abbott and Costello. And you played Faya Condios. I guess, I don't remember what I played. I remember playing Home Sweet Home, that's the number of the little comedy bit. And I, I remember, oh, and along with a, with a with a broken finger, with a broken finger, uh, I break a string. And it's on the most difficult number to play, which is Tiger Rag. And it's just full of notes. You gotta play a lot, a lot of notes. 
And everybody thought I broke the string on purpose, that it was part of show business. It wasn't. It was an accident. <laughs> so that concludes our oral history interview with Les Paul. Uh, again, that was recorded back in November of 2001 with Dan. Um, but now we get to play his earlier work, Dan's earlier work, and that's from radio. So just be aware that the audio content is going to be a little bit different because it's an older quality um different production styles things like that so it's going to sound a little bit different and dan do we know what year this is from yeah i i wrote it down when you told me earlier it was september 15th 1994 so this goes back a ways and um i was very um happy to have an opportunity thanks to a couple of radio stations in the san francisco bay area um to record some legends of music for a little broadcast that I had. Uh, It all started when my voice was changing and I didn't want my own voice on radio and it led to uh, a fascinating career for which I'm very blessed every day to have to talk with uh, many of my heroes and make a friend every single week. Um, Which if you know my personality is absolutely perfect. Dream job. Um, And this was really sort of a a special moment for me because um, I had played phone tag in 1994 uh, that was very expensive to do. Um, The phone bill was running up and I think I had three or four months of pretty heavy phone bills back to New York and New Jersey amongst uh, management and finally Les's son before I finally landed this opportunity to talk to Les on the phone. So uh, here is that, uh, that interview. It's an oldie, but a goodie. Hello. Hello, Mr. Paul? Yeah. Hi, this is Dan Del Fiorentino. Uh, hey, how you doing out there? I'm doing wonderful. How about you? Doing fine. Well, thank you very much uh, for taking some time. Is this, a, is this a good time to talk? Sure. Wonderful. Um, thanks to your good friend, Mr. Stern, we were able to hook up with you. With who? Uh, Howard Stern. Oh, Howard Stern. Yeah, sure. Uh, I guess, is is he your manager? Yes. Oh, okay. Don't get him mixed up with a disc jockey. (laughs) (laughs) Harold is another fellow. (laughs) I I wouldn't do that. (laughs) No, I hope you don't. (laughs) Okay. So, um, uh, I'm not sure if uh, if he mentioned to you, but uh, KCE is a nonprofit radio station, and we've been playing big band music for about 15 years now. Mm-hmm. And you are uh, one of the most requested uh, performers we have. No kidding. Especially that um, that recording of uh, uh, let me make sure I got my notes right here. Uh, Lover. Oh, that was the first one I released. Yeah. That was the first one I made in multi-track for Capitol Records. It was the first one that we released, not the first one I made. Right. But it's the first one released, so it kind of came out in chronological order. So that was the first one uh, in the four-box set that you you probably have that CD. Correct. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, Yeah, lover. That's that's a beautiful uh, collection. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Did you... um when that record record came out, or or as you were recording it, was it exactly what you wanted to accomplish? Well, it was uh, the uh, one of the uh, very first experiments in that world where you do sped up things and where you're using the echo and and you're playing all the 
different parts, uh, like the drums, I put those on separately. That's the old, probably the only one that I used in uh, uh, all, all the uh, multi-career of Mary and I and before Mary uh, that I ever used a drum. I just took and recorded it, and this was all on disc before tape. And so when I made it, I put it on a turntable. So the drums, you just, <laughs> I recorded them separately, put them on one disc, and then I played my guitar along with it. Oh, okay. And uh, so that's how the drums got on there. And then the bass, bass part, okay, uh, I pulled a bass player in for that first record, and that's the only one that I have that uh, has a, uh, a real bass on it. All the rest of the recordings from the first record on are all with uh, my guitar. I use that as my bass. Oh, I see. Okay. So they're, they're, on all the records, uh, everybody believes or thinks that they, when they hear them, uh, they're hearing a bass, but there's all done on one guitar. I'm, I'm wondering if you could help uh, maybe some of our listeners who aren't as musically or recording-oriented. Uh, um, what exactly an overdubbing is? Well, uh, what, it, what it is is where you play a part. You play a part and you record it. And then what you do is you play along with that part, a second part, and you record the two of them together, and now you have, it's like you take a picture of yourself, and you and then you stand alongside of the picture, and you take you take the two of you. One, of you. one is a picture, and one is yourself live. If you do that, you're going to see two of the same person. Now, if you take the, the photograph of the two of them, and then you stand in the picture with the two of them, you now have three of them. <laughs> and you keep doing that, and the problems are, of course, uh, they're, they're very critical because by the time you go 37 times down uh, in generations, why uh, you have to be uh, have very fine equipment to do it and really know what you're doing because 37 dubs down in the... The first generation, you don't know if it's a man or a mouse. <laughs> <laughs> the deterioration, the generations down, really plays havoc. But uh, uh, I, we could we could manage to do very well by going down that many times. But the the trick there was we did them backwards, and in doing them backwards, uh, we put the, the first person or the first uh, recording. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm doing a comparison here for the listener, uh, but if you take the first part and put him down, and you put a part down there that is going to be buried anyway, it's going to be in the background, you won't notice that it's distorted or that it's, uh, 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 it's changed from its original picture and some quality is lost or whatever, uh, which is... Uh, you're unable to record 37 times down without a loss. Right. And so you, the trick is, is to play maybe the fifth part first, and the most important parts go on last. And so, if, let's say, "How High the Moon" 
you're going to do 24 parts, and there's 12 of Mary and there's 12 of me on there. Uh, as when we make the recording, what I would do is I would have Mary sing the, the, the part, the fifth part first. Oh, I see. And and so when you end it up, you end up with the last thing to go on would be the first part because he's the one that's going to be predominantly out in front. And you want him nice and clear, and you want to hear everything uh, with the least generations or distortion, so forth and so on. And that's the way it's done. Now, no one else did that, but that that's the way we did it in the pioneering days. And prior to Mary, of course, it did the same thing, like on Lover, uh, you do the same thing. You do it, uh, start with the last and end up with the first. And oddly enough, the most important part that you put on there is the bass, and the bass part. So you put the bass part on last because you never know how loud to make the bass. Everything else can go on there, and he's the one that creates the most distortion problems because he's modulating the groove the widest. He has the most energy down at that low frequencies. That is amazing. Oh, it is. It's a, it's a trick and a half to do, and <laughs> a trip and a half, and it's a lot of fun, uh, and it's tedious. It's, I locked myself in that little garage out in, in L.A. for about two years. Crosby called me and said, what's happened to you? You know, he figured I'd freak out or something. <laughs> and I told him, no, I was uh, pursuing a new sound, and uh, I was very excited about it. And they'd have to pry me out of my little studio, garage studio to get me to go down and, and record something with them or to do a, a, a radio show. And I, I just kept kept pursuing that idea, and when I did get it, I, I, I remember playing several of the multi-track things, first for Decca, because that's who I was with, mm -hmm. and uh, Dave Kapp listened to it outside of the garage, that was in Hollywood, and uh, he says, well, once around the block, it's just a novelty, and multi-track will never never last. So I said, I don't think I'm the guy. I'm you're, you're not the guy I'm looking for. So I went elsewhere. And uh, it's a long story, but I happened to be at NBC uh, selling this thing, and it was almost completely, uh, the contracts were drawn up and everything to go with RCA. And because of, a, of a, an error back in Camden, New Jersey, I got a wire uh, saying that they, they had a problem with the union, so forth and so on, and they delayed it. So I took my records and walked out, and I remember saying howdy to Gene Autry walking down the street there, and a couple <laughs> other friends of mine was at Sunset and Vine. So uh, before we get into talking about... Uh, Lover and multi-track releases and everything. Uh, while that clip was playing, Dan brought up a really good point, and that was how old were Mike and I when that 1994 interview was conducted? So September of 94, I would have been nine months old. Ooh, I would have been seven. So 
Yikes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm feeling a little old at the moment. But you were alive. Uh, Mike, thanks for bringing that point up. I feel at least a little <laughs> bit better knowing that you were alive at the time. Alive and destined to be sitting here around this table. <laughs> yeah, I was actually thinking about this very moment. Back <laughs> Brainstorming right there about editing and post-production and everything. So um, in that clip, Les does go over multi-track recording a little bit. But for those who are of us who are extremely unfamiliar with that concept, uh, I think we're going to turn it over to Mike to explain it. Yeah, so basically multi-track recording is the ability to record um, multiple sources onto separate tracks. Um, and before multi-track recording, all of the musicians would have to be in the room. Um, they'd all be recorded to the same track. And it was you, you had to play your part correctly. And if anything went wrong, um, if someone messed up or if um, the engineer recording mess something up you would have to do the whole thing over again and that sorry to interrupt but that was like the concept we talked about in the last couple episodes when we went over sun right they were all in right. one room together yeah they were in one room they had four mics and everybody would just play together like you would see a, a band live um, but with multi-track recording um, not only does it able you to go in and re-record individual parts or fix just you know uh one part of a song it allows you to do a lot more such as add effects to individual instruments um, or even to record whole songs with just one person or one instrument um, I know Les was talking about recording an, an orchestra of guitars and and now that was possible with multi-track recording um, which is pretty crazy um, because it, it opened the door for possibilities um, that no one was thinking of before. You know, you never really thought to record the basic song and then, okay, let's listen to it and see what we can add to it. Let's play something backwards over it. That was never possible. Um, certain effects like phasing was never really possible before multi-track recording. Um, the only downside to doing this is the more you layer onto a track, uh, the more the track would degrade and um, that first original recording that you have will keep getting less and less um, substantial. It would, it would, it would wither away. Um, and the other downside too would be that first original recording, if you record um, something else over it, then you're essentially getting rid of that original recording and what Les used to do to get around this is he would record his original onto one recorder and then he would record the second part onto another recorder making it so that the mixed version um, so both parts together would be on one machine and then the first original take would be on that first machine that way you're always preserving the original exactly okay Nowadays with computers, you don't have to do that. It's a lot easier. You just press a button and everything seems to work. So the other concept uh, that Les went over was overdubbing. Yeah, so overdubbing is basically um, just when uh, you take the original recording and if you want to layer in some more parts over it or if you wanted, say, a second guitar part to harmonize with the first guitar part or anything like that, um, you would just record over that original track um, to make it sound like more than what just happened was happening. What's really interesting to me about this is that Les created this for tools for himself and his own playing, 
and at one point he made the comment that um, uh, he was really blown away when other artists were using it to their benefit. And I remember one of those uh, first uh, aha moments for Les uh, that he told me was uh, when he heard Buddy Holly and some of the uh, electronics that he was utilizing, overdubbing in particular, and how Les was um, flabbergasted by the fact that other artists could use this to such great success when really his idea behind it was just to improve his own playing and his own production. So the fact that other people started using it really was kind of a surprise to him. Yeah, I mean, it was it was um, so useful for so many different things. I mean, we're utilizing multi-track recording right now. This podcast is being recorded to three separate tracks. There you go. <laughs> All right, uh, we're going to listen to the last part of Dan's radio interview with Les Paul. And just a reminder, if you want to check out any of our oral history content un- un- uninterrupted, you don't have to hear our commentary. Make sure you go on to our website, which is www.nam.org. That's N-A-M-M.org to check out the videos and many more that we haven't quite talked about just yet. We stepped out of NBC and across the street, they were putting up a canvas sign that said Capital, Capital Records. And I walked over there and... Uh, and in no time flat, Jim Conklin says, boy, how many of these you got? I says, I got 22. He says, you got a deal. He says, he was terribly excited about it. And I'm forever grateful to Jim Conklin for believing in it. That's, a, that's amazing. Did yeah, he was married. Jim Conklin is married to one of the King sisters. And and he was he was very privy to... Uh, not only good music, but creative new things. And so uh, I was, that's the man I was looking for. (laughs) (laughs) Did did you, uh, Mr. Paul... uh, You can call me less. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, Did you um, always consider yourself more of of an engineer uh, as opposed to a, a guitarist? No. Now, whatever I was on, I tried to do my best on it and uh, and uh, try to do it correctly and, and as well as I could. And, and so if I'm playing the guitar, I try to play it right and play it, well, right in my eyes at least, or I like to listen to what the people want, and so I try to please them. I had a fellow on the phone the other night say to me, uh, he says, I want to come down and sit in with you at Fat Tuesdays. And he says, uh, oh, it should be fun because I can play what I like and not what the people like. I don't have to do what they want. And I said, well, I think you'd be going to the wrong place because I said, I don't play for myself. I play for the people. Hmm. And, and I'll be like, I'll never forget. I was in L.A. one time uh, when I lived out there. I was dialing the radio, and in Modesta, I, I heard a disc jockey up there and on a tiny station, and, and he was uh, taking phone calls and so forth and so on. And he says, if you don't like the music I'm playing, then dial somewhere else. But he says, I don't play what you want to hear. I play what I want to hear. Hmm. And I've never forgotten that because uh, uh, a disc jockey 
should play what the public wants. Absolutely. That's what you're doing, right? Exactly. Sure. Does, does it surprise you less that uh, the public wants to hear your records? Uh, no, I, I thought that uh, uh, always the people would uh, appreciate or, or welcome something that was new, creative, different, uh, a new sound, uh, if it's done well. And, uh, of course, I had my jury, I called them my jury, and they were different friends of mine uh, that were of all different calibers. So one might be a, a technician, another one might be a musician, another one may be a housewife, another one may be uh, a gaffer for Warner Brothers, and another one an electronic engineer. And all my friends that came over uh, were, they didn't know it, but they were part of my jury. And when they all would pick Tiger Rag, or they all would, uh, well, I never asked them what they thought of the song. When they came over the house, they'd say, would you put on Mac the Knife again for me? Would you put on this song? Would you put on that song? Uh, and, and then I would uh, file this in my mind. And automatically I would say, you know, no matter, out of all my jury, uh, practically unanimously, uh, they will ask for World's Waiting for the Sunrise, How High the Moon. And uh, so I pretty well knew that uh, as far as Joe Public is concerned, I had a wide scope uh, to deal from, you know. Did your personal uh, likes and the things that you liked personally uh, in terms of your recordings, did they pretty much match up with those that the public uh, identified with? Yes. Yeah, and, and that goes to the fact that uh, I recognize from an early age on that uh, the best thing that I can do is find out what the public wants. And that's, I learned that from Fred Wine, the Andrews sisters, from working at the WLS Barn Dance, from working down in Nashville, from uh, doing country music, uh, playing with the jazz. Oh, there's one. When you play in jazz, uh, there was, it was a critical thing because if you play uh, for the public and you play commercial, that's a no-no. And so uh, uh, when I made jazz at the Philharmonic for Norman Granz with Illinois Jacquette and Nat Cole and all those great players, and we tore that first jazz at the Philharmonic, we just, uh, they were a riot out in that audience. They loved it so much. The, the, as history uh, developed at that time, uh, Norman Grant's had a terrible time trying to sell jazz at the Philharmonic because it was commercial, what Nat and I did. Hmm. And at first, the public accepted it greatly, but uh, not the people buying, the jazz people. Uh, when Norman went to sell the thing, uh, they said, well, that's a little commercial, you know, and commercial is not a word... <laughs> That's a bad word in jazz. <laughs> uh, so you, you know, that's almost like if some guy playing the melody, you're not supposed to play it. <laughs> and and my belief is, is that when they ran over the rainbow or stardust or can't get started, those are beautiful melodies. And that's what, that's what 
what I'm sure you recognize with your listeners that they enjoy hearing is the melody. Exactly. And uh, in a lot of the music today, uh, you hear a lot of the players out there, and they just play loud, and they just play how fast they can play, but they're not playing the melody. And somehow you should not turn your back on the audience. I see it a lot at Fat Tuesdays because I talk to the owners uh, of this club that I play in. I've been there uh, ten and a half years. And it's amazing the people that they get in there and how some of them don't do well. And those uh, that don't do well, the history, I've known them for a million years, and without mentioning their, their names, uh, I know before they go in there that uh, they're not going to do well because they're playing music that the public doesn't understand. Mm -hmm. And you have to realize in a nightclub that you don't just get hand-picked people that are uh, uh, graduates in, 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 in jazz and uh, know music and are, are trained people. He may be a mechanic working underneath the car. Uh, he may, he may uh, be an oil man. He may be uh, a, a grocery man, whatever. Uh, whatever he does, uh, the people are of all different uh, occupations, different thinking, uh, come from a different place. When I look at Fat Tuesday, at the audience, there's 190 in the audience, and there's 190. And there's some that won't beat their foot unless there's good rhythm going, or uh, they're not pleased unless they hear some melody. Then there's another guy sitting there, and he's waiting for you to get very technical. That's why he's there. So I can kind of spot uh, a musician that wants to hear this and, and a fellow from China or Singapore or from Germany, he wants something else. Uh, well, the way I look at it is that uh, when you're playing in, uh, with a group of people, you don't know really whether he's in town for three days and he asks the cab, where is it happening? Or uh, what's a hot spot in town? And the cab driver says, well, go down to Fat Tuesday and hear Les Paul. He's down there. Uh, he does very well. Everybody seems to like him. So this guy says, Les who? <laughs> he doesn't even, he never heard of me. And plus the fact that he don't particularly like a guitar. Who knows? And he comes down there, and he sits there, and he says, well, i got to go somewhere. Another guy says, it's raining out, so I think I'll just jump in here until it stops raining. <laughs> and that's the only reason he's there. And so they're down there for many. Others, others uh, uh, it fascinates me that the four of them will get in a car in Chicago and drive with no sleep, come all the way to New York, sit down at Fat Tuesdays for both shows, get in the car, switch drivers, and go all the way back to Chicago with no sleep. Wow. And they do that twice a year. Uh, the, one of the high executives of Exxon flies in from Singapore. 
And when he comes in the door, I play his favorite song, and I, I, I recognize him when he walks in, and whatever I'm playing, I stop, play his song. He sits down, and he's very faithful. Uh, you know, he's very grateful. And that goes for very so many important people. Do, do you uh, have a favorite song that you, uh, you like to perform? No. Uh, no, someone someone asked me that question too. Uh, of all the songs that we recorded, uh, do I have a favorite? Uh, I think every one of them I'm excited about at the time I'm making it. And if it's via Candias, then that's the one I I, I call Capo and say, hey, I, this is a, this is a hit for sure. This is a hit. And if it's How High the Moon. I have that same enthusiasm about it because it's it's at the time I'm pumped up with that one, you know. And inventing the same way, I was as excited about the electric guitar or about uh, the eight-track multi-track machine or or reverb echo, whatever it was. Uh, at the time, that was the, the round wheel. So I was terribly excited about each one. Does it surprise you at all, Les, that um, one of your original guitars is hanging up in a in a hard rock cafe? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I gave it to him. I gave it to him, one for each place, each hard rock that has them that they got from me. And I give them one of my guitars and... Uh, no, it doesn't surprise me because down at Fat Tuesdays, again, uh, I'll see Dylan, I'll see George Benson, I, uh, I, I will see everybody that you can name, the Johnny Smiths, whoever, and that goes for uh, Illinois Jackass, whoever you wish to name that's around, uh, they'll be in that audience. And so Tony Bennett, uh, about a month ago, he comes in and says, Tony, you feel like singing? And he was right up on that stage and sunny side of the street. He just starts to sing. We find his key and we're gone. Amazing. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a kick. I love it. I wish that uh, that was closer to us. <laughs> uh, you know, I went to California and I looked I looked and I looked and I, I, I tried so hard to find a place that would do what they're doing down at Fat Tuesdays. And I, it just was, unfortunately, I looked in Santa Monica. I looked everywhere around the L.A. area to find a place, and I couldn't find it. You were never successful, huh? No, I didn't find this intimate spot that I was looking for, so I did the same thing in New York. I looked in New York. And uh, finally, I found it, and, I, I, and, <laughs> and when I went to the owner, uh, to the manager, I said, my name is Les Paul, and he says, Les who? And I says, uh-oh. <laughs> uh, and uh, I says, well, I'd like to talk to you about playing down here, and he says, well, we're pretty well booked, and I, I knew I was getting nowhere. And so I says, who owns this place? And he says, that man right over there, sitting over there. So I went over and I introduced myself. His name is Milt. And Milt says to me, not the Les Paul. Uh-oh. I says, I think I struck something here. 
<laughs> and uh, he was he was real nice about it until I said I would like to work every Monday, and he says, "Well, we're not open Mondays." And I says, "Well, would you open up on Mondays?" And he says, "Well, I don't think we'd do any good. It's a, Monday's a, a dead night." And I says, "Well, I'll work for nothing. How's that?" And he says, "You got it." And I says, well, not exactly for nothing. Uh, we'll split it. If you do good, I do good, okay? And he says, you got a deal. And that was ten and a half years ago. Wow. And and, and it's just been uh, a pleasure. And the musicians with me feel just like I do and the owners uh, that they just look forward to Monday night because it's so much fun. I never thought I'd stay more than a month anywhere without being bored. <laughs> it, it is a lot of fun. That's wonderful. Yeah, it is. Well, you, you have an amazing career, and um, we sure hope that you'll continue to record. Is there any other recording dates in your future? Yes, there is, uh, both on, the, on, <clears throat> on video and on, on record. Uh, I'm, more, I'm talking with the Sony people right now. I, I'm uh, making a deal for the, some of the stuff coming out of Fat Tuesdays, and then also uh, playing with some of the uh, uh, today's artists that are uh, popular. Oh, great! And uh, that kind of mixes the thing with uh, uh, with the blues players and the rock players and myself, and and, and we just want to be careful that we don't uh, go too far, step off the curb one way or the other. Right. Uh, kind of stay uh, sane. <laughs> <laughs> if that's possible. Well, well yeah. Uh, Fresno, I want to ask you a question. I had a very dear friend there. His name was Dutch Leonard. Oh, okay. And uh, he had a, he was a, a great guy, and uh, he used to uh, bet us down there when we were in the, in in going through Fresno from wherever we were. And uh, Dutch, I helped put the sound system in for him and uh, make a deal with a lot of the record companies to get outtakes because that's all he collected was outtakes. Really? Yeah. And uh, he passed on, and, and it's, it's a terribly interesting story. I'm writing it in my book about Dutch. Uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I love the man, and, and, you know, he was a baseball pitcher. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and and, and so he went in into the uh, uh, the great business up there in Fresno and, and did terribly well and, and, and became very wealthy, but his, his love was to get outtakes, the ones that were not correct, and so the ones they were going to toss out anyway. Hmm. So he just... <laughs> That's pretty good. Oh, it was, it was the greatest because he was being messed up on a song. Uh, that's the take he wanted. <laughs> and that's the one big one to get rid of anyway. And he, well, uh, Deco's going to toss them out. So they'd say, put these aside for Dutch. <laughs> and McGregor's transcription, boy, I'm telling you, and Decca, all of them, all of them, capital, everybody. Nat Cole, he had nothing but all the outtakes. And the conversation that went with it, 
Some of it you can't play on the air yet. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the latest episode of the Music History Project. If you have any episode suggestions or any comments, please feel free to email us at library at nam.org. And thank you to Zach Phillips for the writing and recording of our theme song. 